Hey everybody, as you can tell, I'm not here today. I'm actually preaching in Texas at Pastor Chris Lewis's church. But let me tell you who is here today. Let me give you a little bit of the story behind it. About 10 years ago, over a three-year time frame, our church had one of the best one-two preaching teams that was rated highly in the world of PFF. Not pro football focus, but preaching fantastic focus. That was when Pastor John Wagner was on our staff. It was a great time of preaching at our our church because I got to take off a lot of weekends and the preaching was still amazing. Oh, how I love being able to say, hey, PJ, you preach this weekend. Those were the weekends that I didn't have to game plan for Sunday, didn't have to worry about how I was going to cut the message short so I could make it home for the Cowboy game or relish in the one and four start of the New York Giants as I watched Eli do the oh shucks face or getting sacked again. But I digress. Those days were Sunday fun day. I'm getting all teary eyed right now just thinking about it. Well, Pastor John moved on to fulfill God's plan for his life as a lead pastor and is now pastoring in my home state of New Jersey as the senior pastor of a church that I got saved in. And so I thought it'd be great for Faith Church to return to the glory days of the PFF one-two punch by having Pastor John Wagner come and preach today while I'm in Texas. I know you're going to hear a great word from God, so would you stand to your feet, put your hands together for the current lead pastor of Faith Fellowship Church in Edison, New Jersey, Pastor John Wagner. Well, good morning, Faith Church. You can be seated. It is great to be back here. Great to see everybody. My goodness, I've heard so many great stories of what's happened over the years. The last time, uh, it's been eight years since we were on staff here. Pastor Elena sends her greetings. She could not be with me this weekend. She's actually preaching back at Faith Fellowship. And so she sends her love to everybody. The kids have all gotten bigger and it's just Wonderful to be here with you today. I want to also greet the different campuses of Faith Church, the Waterbury campus and the Harlem campus, the Atlanta campus, the online campus. We're so glad that you're joining us today as well. We've got some CDs. Uh, we've got very few CDs left. The Saturday night service and the 9 a.m. service were so selfish and inconsiderate that they, they, uh, they, they almost wiped us out. But we've got a few things left out there. I think we've got a couple of, of sets of Galatians. I just did. On a, we have a Thursday night midweek service uh, in, in, in New Jersey, and I just did 15 weeks in-depth study of the book of Galatians. And so it is definitely a seminary level teaching. We've got a few of those left, a few other series. I'll be out there right after the service and I'd love to say hello to as many of you as come out. Let's pray before we begin to study. Father, we recognize that you are present here. That we're not just here to come to church on Sunday morning. We're not just here to check off a religious obligation box, but we are here to meet with the living God. Jesus, you said that if two or more of us gather together in your name, you are actually literally in the midst of us. And so we recognize and we reverence your presence. We pray that you'll speak to each and every one of our hearts and minds today through the teaching of your word, by the ministry of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen and amen. Uh, the church is born on the day of Pentecost in dramatic fashion. The, the Holy Spirit invades planet Earth, and there's 120 ordinary people in an upper room in Jerusalem. And it says, then there's the sound of a mighty rushing wind that comes in. Cloven tongues of fire rests on each one of their heads, and they begin to speak out in other tongues. The people, the other people there, hear this in each of their own languages. And they're wondering, what in the world is going on? You know, they actually think, these people must be drunk. And so Peter, Peter of all people, former foul-mouthed fisherman Peter, you know, the guy with the foot-shaped mouth, he, all of a sudden he stands up, freshly anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach. And he says, this is not what you suppose. These men are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. He says, he said, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied. That in the last days, I'll pour out of my spirit on all flesh and you, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They'll be filled with the spirit. They'll have vision. They'll dream dreams. He says, this is that taking place. A few days later, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. On the day of Pentecost, the church is born. 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. Now it's, it's a week or so later. And as they're going up to the temple, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they go through the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate. At the beautiful gate, there's a man that is laid there at the gate every single day because he was born lame. He's lame from his mother's womb, and so he's relegated to just being placed there every day to beg for money. Peter and John walk by him. He looks at them expecting to receive something, and Peter looks at him and says, Look on us. Silver and gold have we none. In other words, money won't fix you. But what we do have, they knew what they had. What we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The Bible says Peter reaches down, takes him by the hand, and lifts the man immediately. His ankle bones receive strength, and he walks for the first time in his life. But he doesn't just walk. He begins to run. He leaps. He praises God. He enters the temple. Everybody who's there sees him. They know this guy. They've seen him every day laying there. And now a notable miracle has happened to him. And so a great crowd gathers. Peter sees another opportunity to preach, and he does. And he preaches an eloquent message, a great message. At the end of that message on that day, here's something that Peter says. But before we get to that, I do want to just pause for a moment and talk to you about miracles. Because miracles are real. I'm going to try this out of the room. Because miracles are real. Can I get an amen? No, they are. I, let's do this in this service right here. We didn't do this in the other two services. Let's do, that, let's do it in this one. How many of you either legitimately have been on the receiving end of a miracle or you know someone who has? Oh, look around the room. Look around the room. Absolutely. I've got stories to tell, but I don't have time to tell them this time. Anyway, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His power has not diminished not one iota over 2,000 years of time. But here's something that I want to point out about miracles themselves. Know this, that biblical miracles are not a suspension of the natural order, but a restoration of the natural order. 
In other words, miracles are God's ways of putting things back the way they should be. The way that he intended for things to be. The way that he created things to be. Before the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. So here's the thing. The so-called laws of nature are just God's customary way of sustaining the known world. When God does something miraculous, he's really doing what he always does. He's just not using his customary way of doing it. I might go as far as to say that miracles are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Natural. The, The way God originally created the world was not for us to die. It was not for us to suffer. It was not for people to go blind or lame or to fall apart in any respect. How many of you know God did not intend, he did not create us to emotionally fall apart. He didn't. He didn't didn't create us so that our relationships fall apart or that we're broken in any way. So, so, when somebody's back is healed or someone, a blind person receives their sight or when a paralyzed person walks or when chaos is swallowed up in peace or when darkness is dispelled by light or when death is vanquished by life, the natural order is being restored. That was the way God wanted and intended and created the world to be. But let me also say this. That is the way that God wants and intends and created your life to be healed, whole, restored, nothing missing, nothing broken. So the man at the temple is healed. A crowd gathers in utter amazement. They've walked past him every day and he's been there every day for years. And Peter preaches. Uh, Near the conclusion of his message, which will result in another 2,000 people coming to the Lord, Peter says this. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, he says, Repent therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until, look at this phrase, the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, with accuracy and anointing, Peter preaches. And what he's doing is he's unpacking He's applying for the crowd what they just saw happen in this miracle. How many of you know miracles are also called signs in the Bible? And a sign always points to something. A sign always points to something other than itself. So when Peter preaches, he's saying, listen, this was a sign. It's pointing to something. It's actually pointing back to something that Isaiah said when he prophesied that the lame will leap like a deer. And even when Isaiah said it, it was in the context of the restoration of all things. This miracle certainly points to that, that there will be a day when God will restore everything. How many of you know there will be a day? It's not fantasy. It's not mythology. This will actually happen. There will be a day where, God, where there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, when sorrow and sighing flee away, the Bible says, when even the last enemy, death, will be dealt the death blow. There'll be healing for the nations. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more struggle. There will be perfect peace forever and ever. That's going to actually happen. But 
obviously. That's not the only application for restoration. Peter, Peter's saying the miracle that just happened right here at the temple gate. Right now, in the here and now, is all about God restoring things to their natural order. The way he intended them to be. The way he created it to be. He's saying this man was not created to suffer. He was not created to be lame. He was not created to live his life in poverty. He he was not created to live without a relationship with God. So in Jesus' name, he's restored. And his restoration on the spot resulted in, in healing. It resulted in salvation, walking, leaping, and praising God. The Lord has restored the Lord has restored him physically. The Lord has restored him socially. The Lord has restored him emotionally and more. Peter is saying, what you are looking at, what you've just witnessed with your eyes, is the very supernatural power of the name of Jesus to miraculously restore. This is a demonstration of restoration. And here's why and how every one of us can relate. Because everyone encounters loss. Everyone. This wonderful gift of life that God gives us. How many of you know it can, be, it can sometimes be very, very complex. Very complicated. It can be full of twists and turns, ups and downs, good times, bad times, a mixed bag of both. And in this life, somewhere along the roller coaster ride of life, everyone suffers loss. Something's withheld. Something's taken from you. Something may have even been stolen from you. So, some losses are because, you know, people do something to us and it results in a loss. Some of us, some of us encounter loss because we've done something or, or we've neglected to do something. Some of it, sometimes it just happens. We don't even know why. Some, you know, things completely out of our control. Intangibles take place. Seemingly random things happen. And maybe we can just chalk it up to the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world. But loss can cause pain. It causes insecurity. It can cause health issues. It can cause emotional shutdown, depression, bitterness. But I am here to tell you today and show you from the scripture that our God restores. Our God restores. Say it with me today, ready? Our God restores. Say it with a little more oomph, ready? Our God restores. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, say, our God restores. Tell, go ahead, tell them. Tell them with a little attitude. Say, our God restores. He wants to restore all things. He's not looking to assign blame. He's not looking to dole out punishment. You do know that all of the punishment that you and I deserve, it was all placed on Jesus on Calvary's cross. He's our father. He's a father who loves his children. He loves his children, period, full stop, no strings attached, unconditionally, no addendum. He loves us. And because he loves us like that, he wants to restore all things. Jesus said it himself. He said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more does your heavenly father want to give good gifts to his children? And I know some of us think like this. 
We think, well, yeah, yeah, but the things that I've suffered in my life, the, the loss that I am currently in and experiencing, truth of the matter is, it was my fault. I, I did things. I, I, made, I made choices that have me where I am today. I, I'm the cause of my own pain, so, so God won't do anything about that, right? Wrong. Flat out wrong. Listen to me carefully. There is nothing. There is no missing the mark, no fault, no wrong decision that is too big for the grace of God. There's none of that. There, none of that is too big for the name of Jesus, for the power of God, and for the blood of Jesus. God is both able and willing to restore no matter how the loss originated. That's the goodness of our God. That's the kindness and compassion of our God. He wants to restore the love you once had for your spouse. He wants to restore the relationship you once had with your child. He wants to restore the confidence you once had in him. He, he wants to restore to you a vital and vibrant relationship with him. Where, where, where you walk with him and you, you talk with him and you hear his voice and you, you're filled with his spirit. He, he wants to restore your emotional stability so that you can handle all of life's adversity. He wants to restore the vision you once had for your life. He wants to restore purpose and meaning to your life. He wants to restore you spirit, soul, and body materially, intellectually, socially, psychologically, and above all spiritually because our God restores. He wants to restore all things because he loves you with an unchanging, everlasting, immutable, inseparable, unswerving love. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to see how God restores and how we receive. First, let's take a look at how God restores. I want you to open your Bibles today to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, where all the pages of your Bible are still stuck together. Joel chapter 2. As you're turning there, there is a principle that we absolutely must grasp. And that is that biblical restoration is very different from our secular idea of what restoration is. For the se from the secular definition. Um, We've got two golden doodles, golden retriever mixed with standard poodle, uh, Teddy and Cooper. Teddy's the older, she's the red one, she's the female. We got Teddy when we were living here, right over here in Brookfield. My wife did all the different, you know, she figured out what generation of golden doodle she wanted. And so she, she, she found a place in Michigan where she could get an FB1 golden doodle. And they flew Teddy to us as a little puppy. We picked her up at the Hartford airport and, and we brought her home. And she immediately, in less than a week, chewed all the chair legs in the kitchen until they looked like rawhide. All of them. So what do you do with that? You have to get them restored. Right? You take them to a furniture restoration guy. And so what does he do? He sands them all down, sands it smooth, tries to match the stain just right. And then he gives it back to you. And you consider that to be, wow, our, our furniture was restored. In other words, it's now back to the original condition that it was in. Of course, Teddy being a puppy, we got him restored, put him back in the kitchen. She chewed them all down again anyway. 
in our everyday lives, when we think of restoration, we think of it as putting something back to its former condition. Can I just tell you today that the scriptural definition goes way beyond that. It goes exponentially beyond that. In Greek, the word for restoration is apokatastasis, and it means restitution, regeneration, balancing of accounts. In Hebrew, it's the word shalom, which sounds like shalom because it is like the first cousin of the word shalom. So it means recompense, reward, to be safe in mind, body, or estate, to finish, to fulfill, to make prosperous, to make something completed, to perfect. So for instance, one example in your Bible is Job. Job suffered terrible loss. He lost everything. And in the end, the Bible says God restored him. To what degree? Here's what the Bible says in Job 42.10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. I remember years ago, Pastor Frank talking about this very verse, and he said, God will give you double for your trouble. And that's true. That's exactly what happened. However, that's not an exact equation like in other places in the Bible. It's not always, when God restores, it's not always double. Truth be told, many times in the Bible, it's more than double. Uh, When God, here's the bottom line, ready? When God restores, it's always better than it was before. Always better. Let me do a little illustration with you. Hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll help you remember this. Okay, so if your life was here and something happened, you know, something happened to you or, or you did something, you did something stupid. Some people do stupid things. Some people get stuck on stupid, right? Maybe you were like for, for a few months or whatever and your life wound up here. Our secular definition of, of, of restoration would be, well, then if God restored you, he, he would, you know, things would get better and he'd restore you to here again, which would be great, which would be good. It would be okay, great, that would be wonderful. But I'm here to tell you that's not what the Bible teaches. And I'm also here to tell you that this is true every single time in your Bible without exception. Every time when God restores, okay, you had some dark days, things got really bad. But when God restores, God always restores here. Every single time. Do it with me. Do it with me. Come on, everybody. Take your, like, heart level. Heart level. Right? This is your life. Come on, everybody. Come on. You can do it. This is not going to cost you anything. Right here. Here's where your life was. And so things went bad. And you lost some stuff. Some stuff was stolen. Some things were taken. Like, you got pretty depressed, man. You were down here. But when God restores, he restores here. Keep your hand there. Keep your hand there. Keep your hand there. And I want you to say something with me today. I want you to declare it today. Say, I'm going here in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 That's how God restores. I mean, think about it. In all of Scripture, there is never one person who like Jesus comes into their life and their life gets worse. It doesn't happen. There's nobody in the Bible who receives Jesus and their life like stays the same. Nobody. And we, we don't have time to go over all the instances of restoration in the Bible, but let me just give you one reference point that we're actually gonna come back to at the end of the message. It's Exodus 22. You don't have to turn there for now, but Exodus 22 um, talks about restoration. 
And it says this, for instance, if livestock is stolen and the thief, when that person is found and the livestock is still alive, that thief would have to restore double the amount of livestock. If money was given to someone to hold and that person made off with it and they stole the money, when that person was found, the thief had to restore double the amount of money. If livestock was stolen and it was either killed or sold off by the thief, when he was caught, he had to restore five oxen for everyone stolen and four sheep for everyone stolen. But here's the bottom line. When God restores, it's always better. Amen? Have you found Joel chapter 2? Okay, if you haven't, just give up. Just stop now, give up, go home and practice. Joel chapter 2. Remember now, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church is born. He refers to this. A few days later, the miracle happens at the temple. What does Peter do? He points back to this again. And the reason why I tell you that is because even though what we're about to read is in the Old Testament, even though it was prophesied in the Old Testament, Peter's telling us the fulfillment of this prophecy happens in the New Testament. It happens under the New Covenant. This is an Old Testament promise, but it comes to pass under the New Covenant. The reason why I tell you that is because even though what we're about to read is in the Old Testament, this promise is for you. You live under the New Covenant. This is your promise. Watch what God says. Starting in verse 23, Joel chapter 2 and verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion. If if you're used to taking notes in your Bible, write down Hebrews 12 right there. Hebrews 12 says that we are the children of Zion. We're not the children of Mount Sinai. We're the children of Zion. So again, this is for us. And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain... And the latter rain in the first month. Now, again, that's easy to just read over and glance over, especially if you do not live in an agrarian culture. But let me tell you something. If you do live in an agrarian culture, rain equals blessing. In your Bible, rain equals blessing. Listen, I just spent eight years in West Texas the cotton capital of the world where it does not rain all that often. And when it does, it means blessing for everybody. The cotton farmers do a dance when it rains because it means bumper crop. Therefore, the bankers are celebrating because they're going to get bigger deposits and the retailers are going to sell more stuff and the price of cotton is going to go down for all of us. Rain means blessing. And here God says, I promise to give you the former rain and the latter rain in one month. The former rain and the latter rain are the spring rains and the fall rains. They are seasonal rains. They're two to three months each. And God says, I'm going to give you what would normally take four to six months of rain. I'm going to pour it out on you all in one month. To you and I, if we'll receive it, we could have the best month ever. Why? Because the blessing of God that might take months and seasons to materialize in your life, you can receive it in one month. That might be a word for you. But that's not what we're talking about. Let's keep going. Verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat and the vats will overflow with new wine. Verse 25. 
So I will restore to you. So I will restore to you. I want you to notice something. God didn't say, I might restore to you. Maybe if you're good enough, I'll restore to you. Let me pontificate. Let me prayerfully consider. And maybe when I'm done, I, I might restore to you. How many of you know God said, I will restore to you. And when God says, I will, he will. How many of you know he's a faithful God? I said he's a faithful God 100% of the time. He's never failed. The Bible says God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it and shall he not do it? Has he not spoken and shall he not make it good? When he says, I will restore to you, that's a promise. So I will restore to you the years. Some of us have experienced loss for years. And God says, I I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Did you notice that God said that last phrase twice? How many of you know God doesn't stutter? God didn't forget that he just said it before. God says it twice to make it emphatic that his people will never be put to shame. If you are here today and you are carrying some sort of shame over something that happened in your past, I encourage you to receive the finished work of Jesus Christ because on that cross, Jesus took all your shame. He took all your regret. He took all of your condemnation. He took all of your guilt. He was made to be sin, though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Today, you can leave here shame-free in Jesus' name. And you should. So Joel talks about locusts. A locust can be literal, obviously, or it can be symbolic, it can be metaphoric. Uh, And it represents a a day or a time or a season or an event that brings devastation. The Spirit of God through Joel intentionally details four kinds of locusts. The swarming locust. Swarming locusts would appear suddenly and disappear suddenly, but there would be swarms that were so thick that it could blot out the sun. In 1899, a swarm of these locusts crossed the Red Sea and occupied 2,000 square miles. Swarming locusts. Crawling locusts. Uh, They were creeping. They were unwinged locusts. They were in the early immature stage of locust development. They were immature locusts. The consuming locust was a fully mature locust that could strip an entire field to the ground and cause complete devastation, total loss. And then finally, he talks about the chewing locust. This is a different kind of locust. It doesn't totally destroy. It just gnaws away at the fruit. Something that slowly eats things away. Areas in which you have no fruit, no progress, nothing to show for your work. 
But here's the number one thing that you need to know. That God's promise to restore covers all loss. All loss. Swarming locusts, sudden devastation. Lost due to immaturity. Can I ask you a question? How many of you would admit that when you were younger, you made some pretty immature choices that cost you? The rest of you, we will pray for liars at the end of the church service. Loss due to immaturity, complete loss. Or something that slowly eats away at you. Gnawing, frustrating areas of no progress or even slow regression in your life. God will restore, whether it's in the beginning stages or the end stages, in the latter stages, swarming, crawling, consuming, chewing. None of them are a match for God's promise. None of them are a match for God's power. He says, I will restore to you. Take that personally today. See, that's what makes all the difference. You can sit in a church service and you can hear a message and go, hey, great, and walk out and be the same. Or you can receive it personally as a word from God's word to you. And one word from God can change your life. And when we talk about restoration, let me just share this on a personal level with you. I'm not just talking to you today about a theological truth or a biblical principle or something I studied and put a message together for. Can I just tell you what? My life is a life that, of restoration, of God's gracious restoration in my life. At the age of 20, I was, I was about as much of a train wreck as a 20-year-old could be. My life had completely come off the rails it started in eighth grade. In eighth grade, I gave in to peer pressure and smoked my first joint. It was weeks later that I was selling weed. And then from eighth grade to my senior year of high school, I experimented with every kind of drug that you could experiment with that you didn't have to shoot into your arm. But when I got into high school, I landed on my drug of choice, and that was cocaine. And so when it came time to choose what college I would go to, the way I chose what college I would go to is, okay, where can I go to get the most amount of cocaine for the least amount of money so that I could sell coke and become a millionaire as fast as I possibly can? So I chose the University of South Florida in Tampa. <laughs> the University of Sun and Fun is where I went. And I, 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 I think I went to about two or three classes. Not courses, classes. And I, I, just, I just got immediately hooked up with all the, the, the wrong people and uh, had an accountant in New York who was the financial backing of the whole thing. He'd Western Union me thousands of dollars. I'd pick it up in South Florida. Guys would come over to the apartment. We'd get the scales out and I would buy large quantities of cocaine. I would cut the cocaine. I'd put it into FedEx architectural tubes and ship it back to New York. So when you ship coke or any kind of drug over state lines, you're no longer a dealer. You're now a drug trafficker. So I became a trafficker, but I did not become a millionaire because I also became an addict. And I snorted all the profits. And so my life became a prison. And that prison was this. 
my every waking thought was consumed with how do I get more cocaine so I could sell more cocaine so I could do more cocaine and then I got to get more cocaine and sell more cocaine so I could do more cocaine. That became my life. Until Easter Sunday evening, 1984. And on that evening, in a church service a lot like this, at the end of the service when the pastor made his altar call, and I, and I had visited three or four times by then. By the way, I was the worst person to ever try to get to come to church. My best friend, Phil, kept inviting me to church. I told him every excuse in the book that I could to not go to church because I didn't want to become one of those Christians. So I told him, once, one time he says, John, will you come to church? I said, no, nah, I got a dentist appointment. He's like, Sunday? I'm like, yeah, he's like a really special dentist. But anyway, I, I, but, but on Easter Sunday, 1984, I walked into that church, a full-blown Coke addict, in a black leather trench coat and a punk attitude. And I raised my hand and I came down to the front and I prayed the simplest prayer And the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And that happened to me that night. (laughs) I walked in an addict and I walked out a new creature. No, and listen, I got a lot of compassion and I have people very near and dear to me who have you know, had withdrawals from drug addiction and gone through rehab and all that kind of stuff. But that, that's not my story. My story is wham, something happened to me that night. I became a new person and I was no longer addicted to Coke. I was like addicted to Jesus from then on. Never had a struggle. Never, I was never even tempted in 34 years. Prior to that, I couldn't make a good decision. It's like if there was a choice to make, I would choose the wrong choice. Every time. But after that night, I'm here to tell you, the Lord restored. He restored everything in my life. Our God restores. God will restore your family. God will restore your friendships. God will restore your finances, your faith, your emotional well-being, your self-image, your, 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 your own self-respect, your, your purpose, your dream. Any form of brokenness, any area in which you have encountered loss, God says, I will restore. That, that's the promise. That's God's promise to you. So that's how God restores. How do we receive? Well, I mentioned before Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22 is is in the law. It is the legal basis for restitution and restoration. Now, I want to show you something. One verse in Exodus chapter 22, and I'm going to show it to you in the New Revised Standard Version. There's a reason for that. I'll tell you in just a moment. Here's what it says. In any case, any case, in any case of disputed ownership involving ox, donkey, sheep, clothing, or any 
other loss. In any case of any kind of loss, this is comprehensive, of which one party says, this is mine. The case of both parties shall come before God. Now, almost every other translation there says, shall come before the judge. Like the judge who would be judging in that day. Um, But that's where they're wrong. Because in the Hebrew, the word used here is Elohim. Elohim is a name of God. Matter of fact, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So the right translation, NRSV, that nails it here. The both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to the other. Now I want you to understand something. You cannot possibly be the party that God condemns. Did you know that? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus took that condemnation on the cross so that you would receive his righteousness. So you cannot be the party that God condemns. And by the way, the party that God condemns is the party who stole something. It is the one who is the thief. And the Bible says very clearly, Jesus said it, that there is one who is a thief who comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. And the one, listen carefully, who God condemns, shall repay double to the other. Follow me. Let me ask you a question. What is rightfully yours? What's rightfully yours? What's been lost? What's been stolen? What what has some metaphorical locust eaten up in your life? Because please understand this. Everything that Jesus purchased on Calvary's cross is yours. Let me say it again. Everything that Jesus purchased on Calvary's cross is yours. It's rightfully yours. It is legally yours. It has been purchased and paid for in his blood and then freely gifted to you. You are the legal heir of everything his death afforded. You have been gifted the title deed in the courtroom of heaven, which is the only courtroom that really matters. But in the courtroom of heaven, that's all legally yours. It's yours. It belongs to you. It is your inheritance. It has all been credited into to your account. So listen to me carefully and follow me here. You experience what the Spirit does, but you claim what the Son has done. Let me say it again. You experience what the Spirit does, but you claim what the Son has done. Can I just tell you something? The Spirit of God is doing something right now. The Spirit of God is moving in our hearts right now. He's moving in our midst right now. The Spirit of God is in this place right now. The Spirit of God is in your life, and He's doing things. You experience what He presently does. But when it comes to what Jesus Christ did on a hill outside of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha 2,000 years ago, you claim what He has already done when He said, It is finished. That's yours. You claim it. So how do you do that? You go before God and declare, this is mine. This 
is mine. Say it with me. This is mine. Say it one more time a little louder. This is mine. Okay, so we're going to do an exercise. I'm going to say some stuff. I'll give you a little list, a couple bullet points. And then, I'm point, and then I'm going to point to you. And when I point to you, you shout, this is mine. Let's practice. Ready? So I'm going to say some things and then I'm going to go. Lord Jesus, help us in this moment. So we, we got we to gotta practice again. Ready? So I'm going to say some stuff and then I'm going to go. Okay, but now when you do it, you just got to raise it by like 80 decibels. Okay, ready? 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 Because, because the things I'm going to delineate right now, as far as the Bible is concerned, they are yours. They're yours. Not because you're good, but because he's good. They are yours by grace through faith. They belong to you as far as God is concerned. And how many of you know his opinion is the only one that matters? Okay, ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Salvation, healing, wholeness. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Strength, courage, and wisdom. Forgiveness, justification, and sanctification. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And he's given you life and given it to you more abundantly. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. Your God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Your mind is being renewed. Therefore, your life is being transformed. Christ is being formed in you. Every curse has been broken. Every chain of addiction has been snapped. Every prison door has been flung open. Your God opens doors that no man can shut. Peace that surpasses understanding. Power, love, and a sound mind. Your thoughts are being made agreeable to his will. So shall your plans be established and succeed. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You are a body filled and flooded with God himself. No condemnation, no separation, accepted in the beloved, called, gifted, anointed, appointed, highly favored, loved beyond measure, fully restored. Oh, come on, stand to your feet and let's give God thanks and praise. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Go ahead, tell him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is mine. This is mine. 